All right, let's do a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for looking on the bright side with the news that Bill Cosby says he is having, quote, an amazing experience, unquote, living in a maximum security Pennsylvania prison. That's according to his spokesman. Convicted of drugging and sexually assaulting, well, Andrea Costand and how many others, Cosby, 81, is exercising and losing weight while serving three to ten years. He lives in a single cell and speaks on the phone three times a day for three minutes with his wife, who has yet to visit. That's the way he wants it, said the spokesman. In the statement, Cosby likened himself to Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, adding, I stand upright as a political prisoner and I smile. We do hope that Mr. Cosby will visit the prison library and look up political prisoner at some point. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for helicopter parenting, with the news that students at a Maryland university (laughs) complained after a woman approached numerous female students asking... If they would consider dating their son, each time the unidentified woman entered a Towson University campus building, then showed the co-eds a cell phone photo of a young man. University spokesman Sean Welch said the woman's behavior may cause concern, so they were trying to find her and ask her to stop. And it was an ugly week last week for Christian Salvation with the news that a Wyoming lawmaker is defending her vote to preserve the state's death penalty, by citing the execution of Jesus. Republican State Senator Lynn Hutchings explained that because the greatest man who ever lived died via the death penalty, capital punishment should remain legal. You have to admit, that is a novel perspective. She added, if it wasn't for Jesus dying via the death penalty, we would all have no hope. I got a feeling she missed something in Sunday school. And finally, depending upon how you look at it, it was either a good or a bad week for camouflage last week with the news of a sighting of at least two bright orange alligators in South Carolina. A state wildlife official speculated that the reptiles may have taken on their Trump-like color by hibernating somewhere near rust, like in an old drainage pipe. And in other news related to rust, which is probably the only time we ever used that segue on the program, A previously unknown form of bacteria that eats iron is evidently feasting on the wreck of the Titanic and reportedly will consume the disintegrating remains in perhaps 20 years. That's according to a study by Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's found that eventually there'll be nothing left but a rust stain on the bottom of the Atlantic. All right, having alluded to uh, our return to the new Gilded Age in the last segment, let's, let's talk about Tim Wu's book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. I noticed that he he opened up the book saying, For Richard Posner, who taught me to think without fear. We had just cited Posner a moment ago, taking a rather dim view of Citizens United. Having read Tim Wu's two previous books, The Master Switch and The Attention Merchants, I assumed that his talk would focus on Silicon Valley. But it did really only in the end. Tim Wu is a policy advocate, a professor at Columbia Law School, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. 
He worked on competition policy in the Obama White House and the Federal Trade Commission, served as senior enforcement counsel at the New York Office of the Attorney General, and worked at the Supreme Court for Justice Stephen Breyer. Let me quote from his introduction. We are four decades into a major political and economic experiment. What happens when the United States and other major nations weaken their laws meant to control the size of industrial giants? What is the impact of allowing unrestricted growth of concentrated private power and abandoning most curbs on anti-competition conduct? The answers, I think, are plain. We have managed to recreate both the economics and politics of a century ago, the first Gilded Age and remain in grave danger of repeating more of the signature errors of the 20th century. As that era has taught us, extreme economic concentration yields gross inequality and material suffering, feeding an appetite for nationalistic and extremist leadership. Yet, as if blind to the greatest lessons of the last century, we are going down the same path. If we learned one thing from the Gilded Age, it should have been this. The road to fascism and dictatorship is paved with failures of economic policy to serve the needs of the general public. He goes on, Look at the global economy and witness the rules of concentrated oligopolies and monopolies in industries like finance, media, airlines, and telecommunications, just to name the most obvious. Firms whose size allows them to treat customers and competitors with impunity. Most visible in our daily lives is the great power of the tech platforms, especially Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who have gained extraordinary power over our lives. With this centralization of private power has come a renewed concentration of wealth and a wide gap between the rich and poor. The concentration of wealth and power has helped transform and radicalize electoral politics. As in the Gilded Age, a disaffected, and declining middle class has come to support radically anti-corporate and nationalist candidates, catering to a discontent that transcends party lines. A renewed economic nationalism around the world blames immigrant workers, foreign products, or elite conspiracies for the diminishment of the middle class. There is widespread anger at big business and how they treat customers, especially in concentrated or monopolized industries like insurance, pharmaceuticals, airlines, and other insensitive behemoths. Many fear Google, Amazon, and Facebook and their power over not just commerce, but over politics, the news, and our private information. What we must realize is that once again we face what Louis Brandeis called the curse of bigness, which, as he warned, represents a profound threat to democracy itself. What else can one say about a time when we simply accept that industry will have far greater influence over elections and lawmaking than mere citizens? Skipping ahead, is there just too much concentrated private power in too few hands with too much influence over government and our lives? The questions, I think, answer themselves. The main goal of this short volume is to see how the classic antidote to bigness, the antitrust and other anti-monopoly laws, might be recovered and updated to face the challenges of our times. By the midpoint of the last century, antitrust became widely understood in the Western world as a necessary part of a functioning democracy as an ultimate check on private power. Yet over the span of a generation, the law has shrunk to a shadow of itself and somehow ceased to have a decisive opinion on the core concern of monopoly. Skipping ahead, what happened? The law is currently suffering from an overindulgence in the ideas first popularized by Robert Bork, 
and others at the University of Chicago over the 1970s. Bork contends, implausibly, that the Congress of 1890, which passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, exclusively intended the antitrust law to deal with one very narrow type of harm, higher prices to consumers. During Tim Wu's talk, he explained how this came about and educated me to the fact that Standard Oil founded the University of Chicago, which certainly for me put a new spin on the fact that back in the 1970s, the Chicago School of Economists were advocating for laissez-faire type capitalism whenever possible. I took a moment to look some of this stuff up. Apparently, John D. Rockefeller said that founding the University of Chicago was one of the best moves he ever made. Here's a quote from a laudatory piece in the Chicago Tribune. The breakthroughs were not just intellectual in the early days. Coach Amos Alonzo Stagg, whose players were the original monsters of the midway, shaped the modern game of football. Still, UFC folks have generally been known more for brains than brawn. 67 Nobel Prize winners have been students or faculty members at Chicago more than any other university can claim. The prize in economics has been a near monopoly for the university, which has had 17 winners since that Nobel Award was inaugurated in 1969. Doesn't this just circle back to the whole idea of spending a lot of your money to influence academic thought? Not to imply, of course, that the University of Chicago was uh, influenced by its Rockefeller (laughs) founding. Tim Wu takes careful measure in in dismantling the rather boneheaded arguments that were offered up by Robert Bork, but does note that they were extremely influential with time. And even though Bork himself failed to get on the U.S. Supreme Court after Reagan nominated him back in the 1980s, his ideas have certainly shaped their decisions. Now, politicians in America like to talk about how important it is to have competition. Competition is what makes us great. But the fact of the matter is that even the University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman liked to point out was that everybody seems to be in favor of competition and capitalism for everybody else and lack of competition and socialism for themselves. Tim Wu pointed out in his book, The Master Switch, to the degree to which monopoly was thought to be a pretty good way to do things, at least by the monopolists. And he devotes a chapter to it in this book. He also outlines the stories of how trusts were formed in the late 1900s in a way that is clearer than any I've ever seen. Wu educates us about the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was enacted in 1890, was during the first furious wave of reactions to the rise of the trusts. The law was named after its original sponsor, Senator John Sherman of Ohio. He was the younger brother of Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman. It's clear the law was meant to address the trust problem. The language of the law is extremely broad. In Section 1, it bans every contract, combination in the form of trust, or otherwise in restraint of trade. In Section 2, it declares that every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be deemed guilty of a felony. The language is so strong, its literal text bans so much, that a scholarly debate over the Sherman Act's meaning and history may never end. On the floor of the Senate, Sherman said, No problem is more threatening than inequality of condition, of wealth and opportunity, and also that if the concerned powers of this combination are entrusted to a single man, it is a kingly prerogative inconsistent with our form of government. 
Tim Wu explains that before the Chicago School of Thought fully took hold in the judiciary, the government still did occasionally step in to break up large conglomerates. He says that no case was more epic than the campaign against the AT&T Corporation. In 1974, AT&T was the largest firm on the planet, an employer of over one million people and the uncontested hoarder of a monopoly that had by then lasted six decades. It was the most important and powerful incarnation of the corporatist vision. It was J.P. Morgan's creation. The Colossus restrained its activities, carefully regulated by the Federal Communications Commission under the banner of, quote, regulated monopoly, unquote. AT&T was not the mere holder of a monopoly, but multiple monopolies, six or seven, depending upon how one counts them up, making it the quintessential super monopolist. At its height, the firm controlled local telephone service, long-distance service, the physical telephones, all other attachments, business telephone services, and markets just coming into existence like online services. Nowadays, even dominant firms pay lip service at least the importance of competition. Not AT&T, which even at the time was unusual in its ideological dedication to the principle of monopoly rule. Through the 1970s, it was still preaching the gospel of Morgan, celebrating the trust as a great human achievement and denouncing chaotic and ruinous competition. It was a tone set by AT&T's first true ruler, Theodore Vail, who had made his reasoning moralistic. Competition was giving American businesses a bad name. Looking back on it, it still seems a little bit surprising that the Nixon administration took on AT&T. Wu notes that one of the real triggers for the Justice Department was the sign that AT&T was resistant even to government control. Over the 1970s, the FCC in a change of policy, was actually trying to induce some competition in equipment and long-distance services. In a particularly far-sighted effort, the FCC introduced an ancestor to the net neutrality rule, an effort to protect the first online service providers from death or destruction by the monopolist. As in Theodore Roosevelt's time, the idea of a monopolist that considered itself above government control compelled the Justice Department to act. Now, if you're old enough to remember the 1970s and the fact that all of a sudden everybody started using answering machines, you may be surprised to realize that AT&T had come up with basically the answering machine decades earlier but felt that it would interfere with people phoning everyone else up, so they suppressed it. Tim Wu makes the case that when they broke up AT&T, this allowed basically online services to come into being, which led to the entire revolution of the computer age. And the other last great case was the government's taking on of Microsoft. Said Tim Wu, Microsoft in the 1990s was a different sort of creature than the gentler giant it would later become. It was an aggressive, cunning, and often abusive machine, ruthless in its dispatch of various rivals. Its founder and leader Bill Gates, before he became a philanthropist, was the archetype of the evil nerd. A brilliant strategist who while rarely holding the better technology, nevertheless managed to consistently beat and outplay firms that did. Gates had an undeniable gift for foreseeing the future and an ambition to try and always control it. By 1995, he noticed that this whole Internet thing might threaten Microsoft's dominance over much of the computing industries. And he was right. Microsoft's two main monopolies were endangered. The web and the use of browsers threatened Microsoft's applications and operating systems. Gates quickly seized on the browser as the key to the future. At the time, the leading browser was a darling little company called Netscape, whose navigator was the first browser of truly mass popularity. To control the browser, Gates realized was to gain control over the future of the web, and, as it later became clear, pretty much the future of the world. 
Jim Wu points out that in our times, with minimal antitrust enforcement, Microsoft would have been in a perfect position to control the future of the Internet, just as Bill Gates had planned. Small firms like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and others were all dependent upon the web browser over which Microsoft now had a monopoly. And luckily for Bill Gates, the litigations that started out under the Clinton administration pretty much fizzled out when George W. Bush became president. And instead of breaking up Microsoft, he decided to just settle the litigation. Now, of course, we come forward to our modern era of Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And I guess Microsoft. And let's throw in Apple. In his talk, Tim Wu says that Facebook needs to face antitrust actions. Its ability to buy up competitors has made it the monopoly that it is today. And Tim Wu says it's time we reverse that. We also must address the mania of corporate mergers that have been dominating uh, the economy of the U.S. for the past generation. And he makes a hell of a case for it in this book. We hope we'll be talking more about uh, the efforts of Tim Wu and others like him to, uh, to push our society in this direction. Assuming, of course, that Amazon, Facebook... And Google have not already amassed sufficient power to control the world, no matter what anyone does. Hope not. And uh, let's talk about the good swift kick in the ass that Amazon just received. Note of the week, Amazon chief Jeff Bezos scuttled plans for a second headquarters in New York City last week, following a torrent of opposition from community groups, politicians, and labor leaders. Resistance to the 4 million square foot HQ2 campus in Queens was fierce. State and federal lawmakers said one of the richest companies in the world didn't need the $3 billion raft of tax breaks assembled by New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo. Community groups howled over the potential for spiraling housing costs in the surrounding neighborhood. Let me read that one again. Community groups howled over the potential for spiraling housing costs in the surrounding neighborhood. You hear that, all you Yimby advocates down in the Bay Area? Labor leaders objected to Amazon's aggressive opposition to unions, but it's agreed that the e-commerce giant's decision did leave some HQ2 supporters stunned. There wasn't a shred of dialogue, said New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Out of nowhere, they just took their ball and went home. The week further noted that Amazon's exit exposed a growing rift from the Democratic Party between pro-business centrists and a newly animated progressive wing of the party, many of whom adopted the rallying cry, Stay the helipad out! in a reference to the campus's planned helipad. The New York campus, planned for a neighborhood called Long Island City, was one of two. The other is in Arlington, Virginia, that Seattle-based Amazon announced in November after a pageant-like search for a host city. As conceived, it would have brought 25,000 jobs, paying an average salary of $150,000 a year, as well as $27.5 billion in state and city taxes over 25 years. Amazon's foes were not shy about proclaiming victory. I hope this is the start of a conversation about vulture capitalism and where our tax dollars are being spent, said City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. A coalition of community groups called Amazon's retreat a victory for the city that works for us and not for billionaires like Bezos. The New York Times said that New York's rage over Amazon's $3 billion tax break package might suggest the era of such billion-dollar boondoggles is ending, and not a moment too soon. There's no reason in an era of raising rents and stagnating wages to give corporations such deals, especially since we have reams of evidence showing these subsidies don't pay off. For more on that, we refer you to our conversation many years back with David K. Johnston about 
the subsidies and tax breaks that communities give corporations. And finally, writing in TheAtlantic.com, Alexis Madrigal said, If you want to understand what's driving the activists who fought Amazon's HQ2, look at San Francisco. There, longtime residents no longer recognize their city. It's become a metaphor for how tech money can transform even one of the most charming and irascible cities into a place where no teachers can afford to live, and even young rich people are terrified of losing their apartments. By the way, somewhere along the way, Bezos managed to turn the corner on the bad press he was getting some years back. I have in my hand a copy of the Sacramento News and Review from November 20th of 2014. An article by Jim Hightower on <laughs> titled The Future of Shopping Hell on why Amazon.com is way, way, way worse than Walmart. If you're an Amazon employee, Jim Hightower points out, you may be subject to a the efforts of time motion experts who have calculated how long it should take you to get from point to point. And scanners will then also record the time workers actually take, and that information is fed directly into a central, all-knowing computer. He notes, of course, that technically you aren't actually working for Amazon. You're hired by temp agencies and warehouse operators with Orwellian names like Amalgamated Product Giant Shipping Worldwide, Inc., This lets Amazon deny responsibility for your treatment, and it means you have no labor rights, for you're an independent contractor. No health care, no vacation, no scheduled raises, no right to a full-time or permanent job. The news of some of this bad stuff surfaced last year. Amazon did, I think, raise their minimum wage. But five years ago, Jim Hightower pointed out that Bezos would not have grabbed such market dominance if government had not been subsidizing his sales with special tax breaks for 20 years. In all but a handful of states, merchants are obliged by law to collect city and state taxes from everyone who buys stuff. Amazon, as an online merchant, has avoided adding these taxes to the price that its customers pay. Bezos has also asserted that warehouses are independent contractors, not part of Amazon. I don't know where we stand on that. Do you know, dear listener, where we do stand on this idea of collecting taxes state to state? I think they have finally reduced this loophole that um, merchants like Amazon get, but I don't think they've eliminated it. Jim Hightower also pointed out five years ago that Jeff Bezos can afford to be a voracious predator because his Wall Street investors have allowed him to keep operating without returning a profit. On paper, his revenue-generating machine has lost billions of dollars, yet his major investors, enamored with Amazon's takeover of one consumer market after another, haven't pulled the plug. Well, it would seem that all those Wall Street types have um, played their hand pretty well now that it's, you know, the richest corporation in the world. This unholy alliance between the tech industry and financial interests is something we will talk about more in 2019. I also stumbled upon a piece I've been sitting on since 2002. It was a piece by Roger Lowenstein, who we have complimented before in this program, talking about how um, investors can avoid giving aid and comfort to deceivers in the boardroom. Back in 2002, Lowenstein was talking about scandals like Dennis Kozlowski at Tyco, and Enron, etc. Said Lowenstein, the current crop of scandals evidence a broad cultural malaise. CEOs knew they could manage earnings, read, manipulate results, to drive their stocks higher. They were encouraged to do so by the amen corner of analysts. It would never have worked unless investors had gone along. The investors didn't just go along, they cheered. Tyco and Enron, after all, weren't merely successful stocks. They were Wall Street studs. Well, we like to do our part on this program to uh, 
to take a different view of things. All right, in the few minutes we have left on this program, I'd like to do an obituary, an unusual obituary. For in this case, we are mourning the death, the official death anyway, of the Opportunity Mars rover. NASA's twin rovers, the Spirit and Opportunity, were landed on the Red Planet back in 2004. They both were warranted for 90 days and both did considerably better than that. The Spirit lasted until, well, March of 2011. The Opportunity made it until June 10th of last year when a severe dust storm on the Martian surface, uh, well, it was a solar-powered craft apparently pushed uh, its circuits into, you know, electric oblivion. NASA tried over the last several months to reactivate the craft, and, well, we just never heard back from it, so it was has now officially presumed lost. If you like science, both these rovers are, you know, heroic stories. The Economist points out that Opportunity, back in 2004, had an ellipse in which it was to land. It was 100 kilometers long and 18 kilometers wide, they had no idea exactly where in that uh, in that targeted area it would land, and it, it it came down in a very special package. After parachuting to a slower speed, it basically bounced inside of a ball across the Martian surface, at which point it was able to extract itself from its wrapping. As luck would have it, the opportunity wound up inside a small crater dug out by a meteorite impact. It was a hole-in-one from 60 million miles away. On the side of that crater, the scientists saw straight away the distinctive strata of sedimentary rock, says The Economist. Nothing of that sort had ever been seen beyond the Earth. It was exactly the type of thing the rover had been sent to find. Before the Spirit and Opportunity landed, the accepted picture was that Mars was pretty dry, except for the polar caps. That was overturned when the rovers found evidence for ancient water on the planet repeatedly. There were, minimal, there were minerals that were only created in salty water, and there were clays formed in potentially drinkable water. There were channels that formed when water flowed through cracked ground. Over the course of its mission, Opportunity drove about 45 kilometers, exploring more than 100 craters along the way. Steve Squires, the lead scientist for Spirit and Opportunity, said if a spacecraft functions for 15 years and then dies in one of the biggest dust storms Mars has seen in decades, that's an honorable death. We'd have to agree, and we'd joyously refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com for our interview with the aforementioned Steve Squires. That was fun. Well, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. This is Radio Parallax. I think on next week's program, we'll have to tell you a little bit about our visit with Mort Saul. We'll see you then.